I'm Timothy, and during a time in my life when I was struggling deeply with the question of whether Christianity is true, the resurrection of Jesus was one claim I could never completely explain away. I'm Garrick, and when I was in middle school, I one time was on a very important date and had to be taken away in an ambulance due to a medical emergency. Well, was Jesus really raised from the dead? Every aspect of the Christian faith hinges on this single claim. If Jesus was raised from the dead, everything about Christianity makes sense. But if he wasn't, the Christian faith is a foolish lie. On this Easter episode of Three Chords and the Truth, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner joins us to talk about what Paul says about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then, in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review a song that's almost always ascribed to the wrong artist. If you want to dig deeper into the historical integrity of the New Testament, one great place to start is the book In Defense of the Bible, published by our friends at B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com today to download a sample chapter from In Defense of the Bible, edited by Stephen Cowan and Terry Wilder. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the apologetics podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. A few years ago, I was invited to speak to the Society of Secular Students at the University of Louisville on the topic, Resurrection, Myth, or History. And toward the end of that presentation, one last student came to the front and he came to ask a question. And here was the question that this student asked. He said, I'm an engineering student. And he said, what happened a thousand or 2000 years ago? It doesn't matter in my calculations of what I'm doing about whether a bridge works today. And he said, I like a lot of things that you're saying about Christianity, but he said, is there any way I could possibly be a Christian without having to believe that all the miracles actually happened? And in my own heart, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say at that point is, sure, you can become a Christian and just try to follow the teachings of Jesus, but not worry about the supernatural things. But the truth is, I can't say that because that is not the truth. The truth is that if God did not intersect history in Jesus Christ in such a way that there were truly miraculous events and supremely the miracle of the resurrection, then there's nothing worth believing in the Christian faith at all. Whether or not the resurrection really happened in history is essential to Christian faith. And with us today to talk about the resurrection of Jesus is Dr. Tom Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner earned his PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary and he's the author of many books, including the New American Commentary on the books of First and Second Peter and Jude. He's an elder at Clifton Baptist Church and the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Dr. Schreiner. Oh, it's great to be with you, Timothy and Garrick. 
Well, I want to focus today on one very familiar biblical text, 1 Corinthians, or for our friends in England and in Australia, 1 Corinthians 15, <laughs> 3 through 7. So let's first take a look together at these words in the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, this text, in some sense, seems to be one of the earliest Christian confessions of faith that focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Schreiner, could you describe for us simply first the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the context of what's going on with the Corinthian church and in the book, Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Yeah, when we read 1 Corinthians, it's clear that the Corinthians have a lot of questions. There's a lot of problems in the church. And one of the problems, which comes up in chapter 15, is they're doubting the physical resurrection. And probably they're doubting that because they held to a typical Greek view. The typical Greek view is the soul is important, but the body doesn't matter. And so they would have viewed a resurrection as something rather disgusting. So Paul introduces this confession by describing the content as something that he received and then passed on. Are, are there implications of these two terms, passed on and received, in this particular context? Yeah, those words received and passed on indicate the reception and the passing on of apostolic tradition. So in other words, Paul is saying there that these truths about Jesus' death and resurrection have been communicated to him by those who were Christians before him, by the apostles. So what we have here is a common confession of the faith by the early Christians, and particularly it started with the apostles. It's very interesting in verse 11, Paul emphasizes of chapter 15, thus we preach and thus we believe, emphasizing the common confession. So Paul received this teaching by the common confession and tradition of the early church. And I think one of the things that's important in that for us to recognize is there are some people, I think of some of Bart Ehrman's writings, in which he basically says that Christians were fabricating, embellishing, and exaggerating all these stories about Jesus. But here's something interesting, I think, for the Corinthian correspondence. It was five or so years earlier that Paul was in Corinth, and yet he could say at this point when writing this letter, this is what I told you. Clearly, Paul is not embellishing this. He is not exaggerating this. There is a core shared confession, a common confession that he can say, remember, I said this to you. If Paul had been going to different places and exaggerating and embellishing, he could not have written to them and said, hey, remember, I said this, because it's not as if Paul had a file cabinet that he says, oh, yeah, I've got to go back and figure out what I said to the Corinthians. No, Paul was saying the same thing in every situation he was in. He was sharing the same common confession and that absolutely disproves this idea that he was going about embellishing and exaggerating as he went. 
So Paul repeats the words and that throughout this text, and that, and that, kaihati in Greek. He repeats those words and that throughout this text when he introduces different witnesses to the resurrection. Do you see any particular meaning or implication in this, or is this just a device that he is used for kind of the rhythmic pattern of the particular text? Well, I think there is a rhythmic pattern there, but I think there are also confessional-type statements again. So he itemizes what God has done in Christ, sharing early confessional statements. And I want to go back again to verse 11, because what you said, Timothy, about Paul not embellishing this is absolutely true. But notice how verse 11, he says, this is the common confession of all the apostles. Not only was Paul teaching these common confessions everywhere, but so were the rest of the apostles. So this was the universal, common Christian tradition. And since Paul's relaying tradition, this goes back to the very earliest history of the church. And in those and that statements, those early confessional statements about Christ's death, his resurrection, his appearances, are rooted in history, in observable events in history. And they're the common confession of the church. I have to think, Dr. Schreiner, that in your all your years of ministry and teaching at the seminary in the church that you've probably been asked this question. You've probably had discussions with folks who are struggling to believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened in history. What do you say to that person who is in the midst of wrestling with this reality? Well, if we start with 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it very clear that Jesus appeared physically to a number of people. In fact, in one of the instances in the chapter, to 500 people at once, and he says some have fallen asleep. So clearly he's implying that many of those to whom he appeared are still alive and that you could go and ask them. So Paul believed it was empirically verifiable from the witnesses that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, Paul doesn't emphasize this other side, but in the Gospels, in a corresponding way, you have an emphasis on an empty tomb. We know where the tomb was. He's no longer in the tomb. The religious leaders cannot produce the body. And if you have appearances where he's seen many people at once. So, you know, the arguments accumulate. I think in Luke, it's very interesting to see that the disciples themselves, not just in Luke, the disciples doubted. They weren't of the type that said, of course, Jesus is risen from the dead. They doubted that he was risen. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus eats a fish in front of them. Because they knew, if you're doubting what you're seeing, that's possible, right? But they knew the fish existed. So Jesus takes the fish and eats it to verify, I'm really here. So they weren't credulous. They didn't just naturally think he was risen. In fact, they doubted he was risen. 
And if you're going to fabricate a post-resurrection story, I always think you're not going to have him showing up and asking for some leftover Long John Silvers. It's just not <laughs> what you're going to do. You're not going to fabricate something like that. But that's what he asks. He asks, do you have any fish? Is there anything around here that I can possibly eat? And that just does not strike me as something you make up. It's something that is grounded somehow in a real and awkwardly real event. And that awkwardness mm. of that mm. event, I think it helps to support the authenticity of that and of those particular texts in that. Why do you personally, just in your own heart, in times when you have perhaps had doubts, what causes you to still believe that the resurrection really, truly happened? Yeah, well, I begin with the biblical witness itself. I mean, I have a wider point of view that the scriptures are reliable and they're true. I think that can be verified for many, many reasons. But secondly, if we look at the accounts and the scripture, I think, as we've already talked about, there are many reasons to think these accounts are historically reliable and verifiable. But the third thing I'd say is we look at history, we see the changed lives of the disciples. I think that is quite remarkable. We see that the Christian faith has changed the world. It has gone to the ends of the earth. And then if we come to the present day, I have seen people I'd love transformed from the gospel. And then I guess I'd have to conclude with, I've been transformed by the gospel. I have seen God change my life. I know that the changes in me are not due to my own power. Yeah, we don't just believe because Jesus lives in our heart. But that's one of the reasons we believe. It's not the only reason. We believe it's, these truths are rooted in history, but there's an existential component. Amen. And now is the time in the program when we draw forth, just for some fun, the Infinity Gauntlet. And so Garrick is drawing forth the Infinity Gauntlet, and he has reached bravely within it and drawn forth a question from the Infinity Gauntlet. That's right. The question that the Infinity Gauntlet gives us today is, which one is better and why? Being a Padawan at the Jedi Temple or being a student at Hogwarts? <laughs> so, Dr. Schreiner confessed earlier he has not read Harry Potter, but he is familiar at some level with Star Wars earlier on. And he, he certainly, Dr. Schreiner, you are familiar with being a student and the teaching of students, so perhaps you can connect on some level of which one of these two places might it be better, more advantageous to be a student. So Hogwarts, of course, is that place where persons who are magical go to refine their magic, to be able to learn to use it in better and better ways in the Harry Potter stories. And the Jedi Temple has Padawans that are people who are force sensitive. They come and they are trained to use those powers for good. There's some similarities in there, oh. even in the ways in which they live uh, in that. And so which one is better? That's really tough. This might be one of the more difficult questions that we've faced. You're choosing between what is good and what is 
best. What is awesome and awesomer (laughs) at this point. I'm going to say I would, as much as I'm a Star Wars fan, we are here in my office in which we are surrounded by Star Wars paraphernalia and posters. And yet I think I would say Hogwarts because of the fact that you actually have a life outside of that. If you become a Jedi, you do not have any life outside of that. There can be no long-term attachment in the form of marriage and living a life outside of that. But at Hogwarts, you can have a life outside of that. If Hogwarts is a little bit more like seminary, maybe, uh, I think for some students anyway, <laughs> you can actually have a life outside of it. Yeah, wands, brooms, <laughs> yes, Greek New course. Testaments. Yes, exactly. These, these it's all, all it's all the same thing. And so, I don't know, I'm going to go very narrowly with Hogwarts as the place to go because of the fact that I don't want my entire life just to be the academic pursuits of learning of magic or Jedi skills. I want to have a life beyond and outside that. Yeah, and in a sense, you're actually expected once you leave Hogwarts to become a part of the greater world and for the greater good, as opposed to a much more narrow job description as a Jedi. In Hogwarts, you're allowed to get a life. And so we need need students who are more like Hogwarts. They need to go get a life. Dr. Schreiner, your thoughts on this important topic? I would say maybe as a seminary professor, given what Dr. Jones has said, that maybe I should stay with uh, Padawan. Padawan, is that how you say it? (laughs) That is how you say Uh, it. Because... uh, I want to shut myself up and completely mm, yeah. completely away from the world and just write a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why, each week, in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock. I'm Garrick from the 1980s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s. So Garrick, what are some songs that make you feel guilty? I don't mean guilty pleasures like the fact that I like disco, but I mean songs that make you feel guilty. What if one falls in both categories like shares if I could turn back time? That one definitely falls into both categories (laughs) at the same time. Well, if I could turn back time, I would go back in time and make sure you did not defile our podcast with that particular song. But I can think of several songs that make me feel truly guilty. One of them would be The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. That was one that made me feel guilty at a particular time in my life. But it's also a song that God used to bring me back into a relationship with my father years and years ago. We'll talk about that on a future episode of this program. And yet I think the song that makes me feel the guiltiest at times has to be Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, which was the number one song on the Billboard charts in December of 1974 when I was one year old. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. 
Harry Chapin has been largely forgotten, but he was one of the most popular singers in the 1970s who worked really hard to alleviate poverty and hunger in certain areas. And there's a double confusion, though, before we even talk yeah. about the song, yeah, about are, who actually wrote the song. Are you sure that it was Harry Chapin? <laughs> exactly. I've had several people tell me at different times when I mentioned this song, say that it was Cat Stevens who performed this song, who recorded this song and wrote this song. And this has become such an urban legend that is so broadly disseminated that Cat Stevens has actually said, I have never even played this song in my house by myself. It is not a song by Cat Stevens. I think part of the reason that that gets confused is because of a song in 1970 by Cat Stevens called Father and Son, which has some of the same themes as this one. And it was a song that everybody had pretty much forgotten until it got revived in the amazing movie Guardians of the Galaxy 2. If Cat Stevens had written the song, I guess you would consider it an autobiography. Maybe so, or something like that. So there's also confusion. Here's the funny part. There's a double confusion yep. on this song right. because there is an amazing hard rock version of this that people will claim is by Guns N' Roses. It is not by Guns N' Roses. No, it is by a group called Ugly Kid Joe. And this is actually how I was introduced to the song. I never heard the original version until I saw the video uh, by Ugly Kid Joe. Now, I heard it for the first time, this song, the original version by Harry Chapin, not Cat Stevens, in the early 1980s when James Dobson played it on Focus on the Family, which is a very different context to hear it than Ugly Kid Joe. Um, James Dobson and Ugly Kid Joe, there is not very much of a connection between them. So for those who have never heard this song, or perhaps they just don't remember it very well, could you describe some of the lyrics for this song? Yeah. Um, you have in the first two verses where a son is born and the father is too busy for him. You have the father has planes to catch, bills to pay. The son learned to walk while I, the father, was away. And then 10 years later in the second verse, the son begs his father to play catch with him, which is a picture that we are all aware of. But the father still has no time. The son says, I want to grow up to be just like you. And so as we get towards the end of the song, in the last two verses, the tables turn and uh, the son returns from college. And he, at this point, now has no time for his father. In the last verse, the father's retired. He has plenty of time on his hands. He calls his son and says, hey, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, the son, he said, I'd love to, dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle. The kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you. The father hangs up and he realizes, my son became just like me. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue. So what brought this particular song about? 
Well, Harry Chapin's wife, Sandy, she started the lyrics describing the relationship between her first husband and his father, who had sent his son away to a college with credit cards and a car and a membership in the country club, and yet never communicated with his son. And in the midst of her developing these lyrics, she heard a country song on the radio about a retired couple who were reflecting on how fast the years went. And after her and Harry Chapin had their first child, Harry finished the lyrics and he wrote the music at that point. And if we're to kind of set up the context for where this song comes from and comes in, remember that in the mid-1960s, Bob Dylan and the band had brought folk and acoustic music back into the mainstream. And with that came some themes of protest, political protest, anti-war, anti-capitalism protests. And in the early 1970s, what we start to see is that folk music begins to expand and it begins to include not only political critique, but also we might say personal critique, questioning the consumerist culture that had emerged after World War II when the baby boomers, they're starting to have children by this point. And what they end up doing is lamenting the generation gap. And we see more than one song of this sort. I've already mentioned Father and Son by Cat Stevens that comes out in 1970. In 1974, the song that I think was probably the song that Sandy Chapin heard on the radio that helped to inspire the lyrics of Cats in the Cradle was a song called It'll Come Back by a country singer named Red Sovine, who he was mainly known for doing trucker songs. And he wrote this song called It'll Come Back about an elderly husband and his wife. And they're looking out on this perfect lawn. And he remembers as he's looking out on his perfect lawn, as he's retired, all those times when he was angry with his daughter for killing the grass. And she would say to him, it'll come back. And now that the children are gone, the lawn is perfect and the grass came back and it's a lament. And so we start seeing these types of lament of the generation gap, this, these laments of the separation between the generations. The house is quiet, there's no children that play. And I said to my wife, honey, if you'll listen real close, you can still hear her say. We've mentioned the themes of both lament and critique in this song or protest, but what do we really mean when we talk about lament and critique? Well, I think lament is something that is a very biblical category. It's an outward cry that arises from a dissonance between the way things are and the way our hearts think they ought to be. And this dissonance in this case has to do with the distance between the generations. Now, of course, there's always been some distance between the generations. That's been something that's characteristic of human history as a whole. But after World War II, there was a different and a deeper generation gap that arises from a very distinct youth culture that emerges. And it gets deeper, it seems, when the children of the baby boom go off to college. And many of these students, they end up rejecting the materialism and the consumerism that they've seen in their parents. They reject the values that had united America during World War II and into the Cold War. And many of these things emerge from the rise of the new left, Herbert Marcuse and other Marxists who spoke of the repressive tolerance of everything that was 
was conservative. But what ends up coming about from this is this critique of all longstanding power structures and sort of a rejection of the values and voices that conserved any past power structures. And one of the results of this was a deep gap or a separation between the generations. And in some ways, I think Cats in the Cradle is a lament about that estrangement. But it's also, in addition to being lament, it is critique because it was not only young people pulling away from their parents' culture. It was in many ways the adults pulling away from their children for their own pursuits of luxuries and leisure and the American dream. And that's where the critique comes in because one result of that pursuit of leisure and luxury was a reduced quantity of time that fathers in particular were able to spend with their children. And we really see that lamented, but also critiqued in this particular song. Yeah. So what is it about the song that makes us today in our context feel so guilty? Well, I think one of the things that we need to remember is to distinguish between a status of guilt and a sense of guilt, because there's a status of guilt. That's one thing. That is where you are actually guilty because of something you've done or because of your participation in some form of sin that is systemic. That's actual guilt. That's a status of guilt. But there's also another sense of this word, and that is a sense of guilt, a feeling of shame. And sometimes we feel shame because we really are guilty, but sometimes we feel shame because we haven't measured up to an ideal that we expect of ourselves or that others expect of us. And I think what we experience sometimes when we listen to the song Cats in the Cradle is a sense of guilt. It may be that it's real. It may be that it indicates that we also are in a status of guilt because it could be that we are sacrificing our families because we want to make sure that our children have every luxury that everybody else has or because we really are more focused on leaving a legacy of money than a legacy of memories or because we can't rest and slow down and take time for our family. We can't engage in Sabbath. So it may be that we listen to this song and listen to this gap between the generations and listen Listen to this father and son who don't have time for one another, and we feel guilt because of the fact that we really are guilty. But there's also sometimes that we feel guilt, we feel an aching and a yearning, and I think that there's some ways that we feel that that is our participation in what it describes in Romans chapter 8 as all creation groaning. This sense, this awareness, this painful awareness that life is brief and we never have enough time. And this is an ache. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 that has to do with the effects of sin. That because of sin, human death enters into the world. Because of sin, our childbearing and childrearing are painful. We'll bear children with pain, it says in Genesis chapter 3. Our work is infected by sin. You'll produce bread by the sweat of your brow. There is never enough time to do all the work that needs to be done and at the same time to invest in our children and care for our parents. And because of that, we just feel guilty at times, but really it is an ache of a recognition of what was lost in Eden. I think of it just over the past week or two, curse you Apple iOS, because it will come up with those videos that will take one of your children and trace one of your children through the years um, because it can identify their faces. And so the only one of our children that we adopted at a time when she was still babyish enough to really kind of feel that was our third child. And so it 
gave to me and I was a sucker and clicked on it to watch a video of her all the way through the years. And I'm sitting there at the coffee shop just sobbing by the time that's over just because I realize it's so short. And I realize how much that no matter how much we're with our kids, how much we miss. And I'm feeling that ache, that groaning. And I think that's what Terry Chapin's song, Cats right. in the Cradle, it awakens in us yeah, uh, at times. There's a deep sadness at the realization of how sin has broken our relationships. And when I hear this song, it's a double-edged sword because I'm, I'm affected by this sadness when I think about my relationship with my children and my shortcomings as a dad. But inevitably, I also think back to my own childhood and how in many ways this song is the story of my childhood and my relationship or lack thereof with my own father. That's when it's most painful is when we feel it both directions. Mm, absolutely. Um, because I feel it right now with my mom as she's getting older of thinking, how can I spend more time with her? She only has a few more years. And yet at the same time, I need to be investing in my children and feeling the tornness between those. And there gets to be a point in life that you feel this song both directions. Yeah, and absolutely. that's what it becomes the most painful to us, I think. And while there can be an unhealthy, unhelpful sense in which we feel guilt, there is a good and right function of guilt in our lives. There is a, in multiple senses, there is God-given guilt. Could you talk about what are some of the ways that guilt rightly functions? I think guilt is almost always a gift to us. Now, the question of whether it really remains a gift in our lives and remains something good is dependent on how we respond to it. I think if it's because of others' ideals and expectations or our own ideals and expectations, that what guilt can do is help reveal some idolatries of how much we are basing our value in our perception of ourselves or others' perceptions of us. And that's when what guilt can do is show us those idols in our lives and help us to recognize my value, my identity is settled in Christ. But sometimes we may feel this because we really do have something going on that we're in the wrong in that. And if it's that, like we can't let go of our work, mm. it can urge us, it can encourage us, a song like this, to embrace Sabbath, to recognize I need to stop to let go of my work. If God could rest, I can too. And I can spend time with my children without having to feel the burden of getting everything done. But either way, the right function of guilt is to drive us to the gospel. Mm. That's really what guilt ought to do. It ought to drive us to the gospel either because we really are in the wrong so that we can receive the goodness of Christ and let the goodness of Jesus, who did it all perfectly, empower us to change the way we are living, the way we are acting. Or on the other hand, it can cause us to recognize my identity is settled in Christ. I don't have to be a captive or a slave to a sense of guilt that is not based in real guilt, but is based on my own perception of others and myself and my value. Yeah, either way, when viewed as a gift, when treated as a gift from God, guilt ought to break us of dependence on ourselves and lead us like children in childlike faith to a an absolute and a, a helpless dependence upon God for all things. I know you've thought through, you have opinions on how we as Christians 
ought to listen to a song like Cats in the Cradle. What is that? Well, I think in this particular song, that the way we listen to it is to recognize that all by itself, I think this song leaves us in the same place that too many sermons leave people, and that is guilt without the gospel. And anytime we have guilt without the gospel or law without grace, it leaves us with nothing other than the hollow ache of our own failures. And I think this particular song, if we listen to it apart from the gospel, the only place this song can leave me is just with a deep sense of how deeply I have failed. Mm. That's where it leaves me. But with the gospel, it can lead us to repentance. It can lead us to recognize the areas of our life that we see our value in what we do and as opposed to our value in who Jesus is. It can help encourage us, urge us to seek Christ and to be able to rest in him and let our rest in Christ flow over into a capacity to rest and to enjoy time with our children and to love and enjoy what time we have, mm-hmm. though it is so short. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. Three.